Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. I'm Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanya, that's Creole, for something extra. Superman, Wonder Woman, Black Panther, that's likely what most of us picture when we think of comic books. But a local cartoonist argues that comics are much more than just superheroes or Sunday paper comic strips. In his exhibit, Comics is a Medium, Not a Genre, Joel Christian Gill includes almost 200 works, ranging from Charles M. Schultz's first Peanuts comic in 1950 to last year's bestsellers in an effort to prove comics are indeed for everyone. The show also highlights black cartoonists who have used their drawings to tell stories about race and social justice. Joel Christian Gill is a cartoonist and author, chair of Boston University's Master of Fine Arts in Visual Narrative, and he is the curator of the exhibit Comics is a Medium, Not a Genre at Boston University. Welcome down to the radar, Joel. Thanks for having me, Kat. Callie, this is really great to be here. Well, I got to start off by telling you, this is one of the single best exhibits I've seen in all of my years of museum going. It is so good. Oh, that's so nice. Thank you so much. I just want I want everybody to go see it. We just spent hours there wandering around looking at it because there's such a variety. So let's start that way. Um, talk to us about the variety of what is in the show so people get a sense of the breadth and depth of the exhibit. I wanted people to come into the gallery space and be just overwhelmed at the number of comics and original comics pages there. Um, and to basically square, to squarely place comics in the history of art in terms of just how expressive this medium could be. I wanted people to come in and see things from you know, the newspaper comics, and I wanted people to see superhero comics, and I wanted people to see very serious comics. And, you know, I wanted it, I wanted it to really be about the idea of this is an expressive medium, and not specifically a genre. And I think people have a tendency to think about comics in terms of like, it's kind of like if everybody read Stephen King books, right? If everyone read a Stephen King, and then you told people that you were a writer, and somebody was like, oh, do you write horror or magical realism? And you would say, no, I write other things, right? There are other things that exist in the novel genre. And the same thing in, in the novel medium, and I think the same thing is said about comics. Well, everybody loves superheroes, and they become the most prominent face of what comics are. They are only a fraction of what that medium is able to do. Well, it's interesting because I saw also on on the walls, or oh, you have quotes from lots of folks. Here's one from yourself. Comics are the pitcher that holds the drink, not the drink itself. Exactly. And that comes from comic um, Scott McCloud's Understanding Comics. And I think it's a really great metaphor for how we think about it, because, you know, I say this um, in the in the exhibition that, you know, if you're if you're serving Kool-Aid to an afternoon party, that's that's something for everybody. Right. In a picture. And if you're serving sangria in mimosa, which, I mean, in Spain, which my family drank way too many of last time we were there, but if you were drinking sangria, 
you would, that's for adults, right? And, and so, but the picture doesn't really define it. And, and I think the picture is just the vehicle for whatever the media, whatever the thing that's in it is. And I think comics are that. Comics are the vehicle for a specific cartoonist's expression. And I wish more people would spend more time thinking about it like that so that we would get, we would get past this idea that comics are this thing for kids, because I feel like comics is a sneaky way of teaching people something. And I believe it's an empathy machine. It helps people understand other people. Say more about that. So if you think about the idea of what undergirds the idea of the language of comics, right, that shared visual language that we all have, you know, I was just talking about this recently, and I think I was probably you know, like an adolescent, like I was 12 or 13, before I actually considered Charlie Brown as being a white kid. And mostly because he was so simplistically drawn that we all poured ourselves into him, into that idea of him. He became an everyman because he really did feel like an everyman in a lot of ways. Um, that doesn't mean that we still didn't need Franklin, but at the same time, it felt very everyman. And so when you take, a st when you take ideas like this and you simplify them and you use like design language and an understanding of expressive drawing to simplify characters down to their basic forms, we see ourselves in those things. And when we can see ourselves in those things, we can tell stories. And those stories work on a micro level in the same way that having a conversation over a cup of coffee with a person can. Like those are the things that change stories. And, and what's interesting about that is that Statistics have shown and studies have shown that when we use stories, personal stories, not statistics and, you know, like numbers to tell stories, personal stories about a thing, people are more likely to change their mind or get a different perspective of things. And I feel like comics are that perfect medium. And I want to like expand that out into the world. Now, uh, speaking of Peanuts specifically, Charles Schultz's comic strip was eventually turned into an animated features just so the audience can feel the vibe, here's a classic moment where Lucy pulls the football from Charlie Brown. This time I'm really going to kick it. I'm going to kick the habit. This is the end of all my faults. <laughs> that is every man <laughs> and woman. How did you get the very first Peanuts comic strip in your show? We just called the Library of Congress. Um, and I had the... I had the fortune of meeting a woman named Meg Hasbland um, a couple of like five or six years ago. Um, and she said, you know, when you, if, and she's a curate, she's a librarian at the Library of Congress. And she was like, well, if you're ever in DC and you want to see some of our comics, let us know. So I was in DC actually visiting with Andrew, Andrew Aiden, who is John, who was John Lewis's um, congressional aide at the time. Is that so the one I, that helped him do the graphic novels, March? Yeah, John, um, Andrew and Andrew Aiden actually wrote with, um, with um, Nate Powell. They worked together with the, the congressman to do March. And so I actually got to sit in John Lewis's office, which was incredible. Um, and so she invited me down and she showed me some of the comics that they had in the collection. And she was like, we actually have original pages too. And so, and, and when, BU approached me to do the curate the show before I was working here. Um, they asked me to curate the show, and I immediately thought the the Library of Congress has an incredible collection of comics. And so I just reached out, and I had like specific ideas about some of the things that I really wanted. I wanted to have some work from Allison Bechtel's um, <clears throat> famous and influential comics, Dyke to Dykes to Watch Out For, the um, it, you know like um, Crazy Cat, which was. Created by George Harriman, 
um, and is probably the inspiration for Mickey Mouse and Tom and Jerry and Itchy and Scratchy and a whole host of other cartoon um, characters, animals. Um, and I knew that the Library of Congress had those things. And so that was like one of the first things we did was I spent time going through the archives at the uh, um, Library of Congress. They sent us like a, a website where we could go through and find things. And I just kind of did a lot of searches for like my favorite comics in history. <laughs> it was a lot of fun. And then I just basically, and then from there, I just shook the trees of all the people who I knew in the area and beyond. Um, Dennis Kitchen, who was an underground publisher who lives out in Western Mass., um, I had I had met him years ago in Baltimore and I called him and I said, you know, we I'd like to, ha to have you part of the show. And he was like, well, I also am the um, executor of Harvey Kurtzman and Howard Cruz's estate. And he said, just come and look. And so I went to his house and it's like an explosion of comics at his house. I was so overwhelmed. Um, he was kind enough to give us a lot of stuff. My goodness, that's one of my favorites in the show. He drew 13 panels of Dickens, A Christmas Carol, which again is a favorite book. They are so beautifully done, moody and dark. And I'm just so unhappy that he was not able to continue. He only has the 13 panels. I know. It's crazy. I think there's a total of 13 pages. And so we have four of those pages. And he took it, you know, he wanted to do, this would have been the very first graphic novel, or at least the modern conception of a graphic novel. Um, he wanted to do that. And he took it to a publisher and they didn't know what to do with it. So he just stopped drawing it. Um, and it's just kind of amazing. A few years ago, um, it was published. Someone else took it up and did publish it based on his notes. But, you know, like Harvey, I mean, also right beside that, I'm sure you saw the the um, gesture drawings would do for Will Elder. And then he would take, Will Elder would draw over those gesture drawings. So you can see, and, the, and it was crazy. Those gesture drawings are absolutely beautiful. They would just throw them away. <laughs> just said they served their purpose. We don't need them anymore. They would just throw them away. They weren't the finished drawing. Um, so it's, yeah, it's just really incredible. Um, and they were just like consummate artists and they just drew all the time. And um, Kurtzman, Kurtzman is one of my favorites as well. I would have to say that, you know, if people are thinking, well, the, the comics, I can't put comics and artistry on the same level, they'd be blown away by the, by the Christmas Carol pages there. They're stunning. But you know what? I also loved Orphan. You got me with that one. I'm reading along, reading along. It really is telling the story. And then it had a big old twist at the end. Yeah, so that one, um, um, Dean Kamen's um, father, Dean Kamen, the inventor of the Segway, his father, Jack Kamen, was a cartoonist for um, EC Comics. And he wrote that comic, and it actually sparked some of the first um, congressional hearings when 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 people started banning comics in the 1950s. That was one of the sparked comics. And so having that seminal comic that basically led the, paved the way for sanitizing comics in America um, was just really important. And by all like by all accounts, Jack Kamen was an incredible human, just not only a credible artist, but also just like an incredible human. So I'll make sure I wanted to make sure to put that in there as well. And you referenced the uh, congressional hearing. So um, I did not know this until I prepared for this story that comics were edgy and radical. They were not at all sort of warm and fuzzy and superhero-ish um, in the 1950s. And then uh, because comics feared a federal law, um, they kind of self-censored. And then, you know, there you were with sanitized comics. And then it changed in 1960s, Sex and Drugs. And then in the 1970s, we get a comic like Mouse about the Holocaust by um, Art Spiegelman. So it's such an interesting history 
told in the pieces that you have in um, in the in the exhibit. Yeah, and I think it's really interesting to think about like the moral panic that happens systemically in America, where we there are people who go out of their way to find something to be angry about and say those things that are just that are corrupting children. And I think it's really funny when you look at there's a YouTube video where you can go online and see one of the senators who was in charge of who was one of the proponents of the banning um, of comics. And um, he's got these kids. It's really hilarious. These kids are like reading like crime novels crime comics in the woods, and then one kid gets up and starts stabbing a tree. It's absolutely ridiculous. Um, but, you know, and it's really, it's interesting because comics were, you know, at, it was looked at as a medium. And so there were comics that were for kids and there were comics were for adults and there were comics for everyone. Um, and because there was no distinction on the spinner racks um, between comics for kids and comics for adults. They just thought they were all for kids and they were like corrupting these children as opposed to just basically saying, okay, the comics for adults will be over here and the comics for kids will be over here, which is what we do now. Um, and because of that sanitizing of comics, it took probably 30, 40 years for America in the last 30 or 40 years for people in America to really start to understand that, you know, comics aren't just this thing for like funny kids and superheroes. They're an expressive medium where you can tell really complex, complicated stories like Mouse or Persepolis or, you know, like just, you know, um, fictional books like um, Understanding Comics or any of other things. I will say um, I was sharing with my team that I, my, I learned to read because my dad would read the comic strips from the newspaper to me. I'm sitting on my dad's lap, and I'm going along, and then one day I realized I could read what was in the bubble, and it was extremely exciting. <laughs> so <laughs> it really is a way of um, communicating stories in a way that just made more sense to me, certainly as a young person, and it got right to the heart of, of what the story was all about. Yeah, um, I always tell this story. My 90-year-old grandmother, who passed away over the summer, um, when she would go in for dialysis and she would take my comics with her. And I can't tell you that she wrote, read a novel, but she read every one of the books that I wrote, maybe because I was her baby, but also because like comics connect with people in this like fundamental way that I think people don't really understand. Well, you are a part, you, you have a special eye then in looking at the storytelling of the comics in this show particularly. And one of the things you're doing or highlighting other um, black comics like yourself. Now, why was it important to highlight those cartoonists or these cartoonists who've been using their work to tell these kinds of stories? I think it's just always important. You know, when I originally started the show, I was going to have like a separate section for each group of people, um, but I didn't want to segregate people out. And so I, I just thought it was really important because, you know, black cartoonists, queer cartoonists, women cartoonists, non-binary cartoonists. There are all these people who are making comics who are, are using this medium to express themselves. And there's just this, you know, like there's always this idea that, you know, it's, it's really interesting. America is filled with a lot more voices than we always give credit to. Um, there are always people out there making stuff. They're, you know, from Grass Green, who was one of the first underground cartoonists who drew comics in the 1960s, was a Black cartoonist. Nobody really talks about Grass Green. You know, I have a mural in the windows by John Jennings and um, Stacey Robinson, and they go, they go by Black Kirby, and when they work together, and, you know, like, I just feel like there, this is a perspective that's uniquely American, and we don't really spend a lot of time thinking about it, right? Like, hip-hop and baggy pants are just as American as baseball and apple pie, right? And so what that means is that Black people situated here 
what, while only 13.3% of the population are an outsized part of the culture. And so it's really important to show those voices represented here, um, you know, and have cartoonists of color, um, you know, like in the show so that people can see like, oh, like I didn't realize that there was this much black cartooning out there. I didn't realize that there were, you know, these seminal, you know, queer stories that were told in the 1970s in comics, right? Like, that's the thing that I want to show, I wanted to show because it's a very subversive medium in a lot of ways where we're, we're taking the idea of art and we're not really saying that this is a quote unquote high art. It's just like anybody can do it. Well, a couple of things. I think that I became more aware of Black cartoonists actually through celebrities like ta Coates and Roxane Gay, who were you know, drawing Black Panther, and um, uh, and that sort of brought my attention to it. So that was it. And then the other guy that I recently became aware of, El, uh, Edgardo Miranda Rodriguez, and um, and his work with the the series of La Brian Kenya, Brian Kenya, and Superman. Yeah, uh, Edgardo is really great, and he's created the superhero, and he he uses it to raise money for Puerto Rico. It's the first Puerto Rican superhero. Um, he goes out, um, and he's just a like he's a great guy, and he's also like a, a powerful advocate and another voice for comics. And he just puts his work out there, and he just and it also like and the fact that he's not only just making these comics that are about superheroes, but he's using it as a fundraising uh, fundraising tool to raise money for, for the communities in Puerto Rico, which is incredible, right? So like that just tells you the power of comics in general. Okay, so I was also very excited to see that uh, you had some animation in the exhibit. Um, so the one that uh, captured my attention was Blockhead's Rap Battle, which shows a rapper fighting demons with music by DJ Khalil and rapper NBS. Let's take a listen. I live this wildlife, that's my culture, it's King Vulture, I'll squeeze. Fully posing the stomach to get me awesome. I'll put black to rest, he won't pass the test. I team with mask and vests and claps the test. You know the street sweet and squeeze off the gun in the shells. I got a hundred rhyming soldiers all under the spell. It's shot by Prince of Empire City, now bring the light to the dark. Defeated by a club, you're stuck in the park. Like I was there. So Mark and Mike Davis co-created Blockheads as a graphic novel, and it was first published in 2003, which brings me to this question. Are graphic novels considered comics? You know, sometimes I get confused by the terminology now. So um, graphic novels are a fancy way of saying comics. Um, So a lot of the reason that a lot of cartoonists started to change their terms and saying no longer saying comics but are talking about graphic novels was because they didn't want to be connected to comics because of the bad reputation that comics was getting in the 1950s so they needed something else it's the reason that mad magazine is called mad magazine and not mad comics because they didn't want to have to be beholden to the comics code authority if they were comics and so it was just a way to separate themselves from that idea Um, But now people see it as like comics are one thing, graphic novels are another. It's not really the day. It's not there's no real difference. Comics is a as a medium and graphic novels are part of that because you use the same skills to make a graphic novel that you would for make comics. Um, And, you know, and there's like there's just like there's a so that if you if you were talking about a Venn diagram, you know, comics and graphic novels would be a circle and animation would actually intersect at places or comics and um, illustration would intersect at certain places, but for the most part, comics and, and graphic novels would be a circle. 
Well, as I've said, this is such an exciting and interesting exhibit, and there is something for everyone. Um, what have you heard that's been interesting in terms of response to it? And what do you want people to take away? Some of the things that I've heard is more about the drawing. It's like really good to see all this drawing um, in, in one place because there's a lot of drawing and there's a lot of variation in expressive drawing in this show. Um, a lot of people have been really excited. You know, it's one of the things is like, I didn't know that there was this much, this many types of comics, or I didn't know that there was gestures in comics, or I didn't know that those comics were that big. Um, you know, there's that letter. This one of my favorite things in the show is a letter from Frederick Opper, who, who drew Happy Hooligan. Um, uh, and he drew for Punch Magazine in the night, in the 1880s, 1890s in England. And then was, money was thrown at him to come to, the Hearst newspapers at the turn of the century. And then in the 1930s, he writes a letter about the difference between comics in the old days for him, and the new comics, which is like woodcut sort of like prints as opposed to photostat. And the whole thing with syndication and how like we just threw the comics away. We didn't care after the end. So like to see that history and how that history is embedded in like the way in which we think about media in general, right? Like yellow journalism was really big at the time and they would just throw, a lot of the superheroes came as a result of, um, you know, some cartoonist creating a superhero and then Pulitzer or Hertz saying, I want that same superhero, so make me a Superman. Um, and I'd just like to see that. I think it's really important for people to see the history and understand just how much of our culture um, has been dictated by comics. You know, LaGuardia got really famous in New York because there was a newspaper strike. And one of the things that he would do was go on the newspaper, go, at, go on the radio and read the funnies because people missed their newspapers. And he was a popular New York mayor because of it. Um, and so like, it's like those kind of little things is what I want people, I want people to look at stuff and then go out and find more things. Well, it's a fantastic show. I hope everybody comes, goes to see it. And I thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. This has been a really great talk. Joel Christian Gill is a cartoonist and author, chair of Boston University's Master of Fine Arts in Visual Narrative, and curator of the Comics is a Medium, Not a Genre exhibit. The exhibit is on display now at Boston University's Stone Gallery and runs through March 23rd. That's it for this week's edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Listen to us online at GBH News or wherever you get your podcasts. And follow us on Twitter and Facebook to stay up to date with our programming. Under the Radar with Callie Crossley is a production of GBH, produced by Jesse Steinmetz and our intern, Jenny Firm, and engineered by Dave Goodman. Our theme music is Fish and Chips by We Are Two Saxies, Grace Kelly and Leo P. Listen again on Thursday and see you here at 6 p.m. next Sunday for a new episode. I'm Callie Crossley. Thanks for listening.